So I, I guess we'll start in uh, three. Welcome everyone to XPod. Today we'll be discussing Tesla's Q3 2021 earnings and the earnings call, which just ended. Uh, with us today is Matt Smith, who is managing partner at Goodsoil Investment Management and a former investment banker and renewable energy professional. Also with us today is Mayor Thacker, uh, a great financial analyst in the Tesla Twitter community. So welcome, Matt and Mayor. Thanks for the very generous uh, opening. <laughs> thanks, Mayor. And Mayor, good to finally hey, connect with you. I, we've been like on Twitter for years, and it's, it's so nice to finally be on a call with you. Absolutely. Likewise. Yep. Yeah. And I, I heard that this is the first time Matt and Mayer have been on stage talking Tesla, right? That surprises me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Follow each other very closely on Twitter, but never actually heard his voice. So actually, no, I did hear your voice <laughs> through uh, various, um, you know, the, the weekly pods that you do with, uh, with Emmett. So but never shared the stage. Yeah, and, and same. I'd, I'd heard you on on, uh, on Galley's channel, and but certainly good to be in the same room. I'd love to kind of bounce some ideas off you. I'm sure we'll, we'll do no small amount of that here today. Absolutely. Um, so why don't we just sort of start off with your guys' initial thoughts on the actual earnings report, and then maybe we'll move on to the call. Yeah, I, I guess... Uh, in that sense, I'll take a crack going first. I mean, to be honest with you, it was pretty much in line with what I was thinking. Um, you know, I had a, a, an earnings estimate of $1.83 per share. So I was pretty close on. Um, revenue line was, was pretty similar as well. Um, there are a couple lines here and there that I was, you know, surprised by. But generally speaking, this was, you know, almost exactly what, what I was expecting. Um, so it was... Yeah, not, not a huge surprise for me, but probably a, a bit of a surprise for some of the analysts out there that maybe don't do some of the, the detailed modeling that, that Mayor and myself do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is just another case of, um, you know, the, the quarter basically proved once again that there that there's significant uh, operating leverage that's, you know, embedded in Tesla's financials. Um, you know, since we saw, you know, continued ramp of both, you know, Fremont and, uh, and Shanghai. Um, so we had mostly fixed costs, uh, you know, quarter to quarter, but with increased production from both factories. So that's going to be pure profit at that point, you know, so we see that happening even now, where, you know, earnings are accelerating at a rate higher, you know, faster, you know, than, than revenue. And that's happening because of, you know, there's fixed costs and that's, you know, those fixed costs are getting absorbed quicker and quicker with every, you know, uh, unit of production um, that comes out in excess of that breakpoint. So that's basically been the story of Tesla really last quarter and, and now this quarter as well. Um, so now I think the street is starting to realize that there's, you know, massive uh, profitability that's that's embedded in this. And it's it was, you know, obscured for a long time because of rampant efficiencies. There's, you know, depreciation was a massive percentage of total revenue. And then, you know, now after that, you know, Elon's, you know, bonus, right there, his, um, you know, performance bonus, that also masked some of the profitability uh, on the operating level. So now that, you know, there's, you know, continued ramp of revenue and, and gross profit, um, we're seeing that those expenses as a percentage of revenue have just flatlined. Um, and that's exactly what pretty much everybody on this call right now probably expected. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's amazing to see that actually play out now in the numbers that we're seeing. 
Yeah. The other thing I want to kind of just add on there is um, it, it was pretty astonishing to see, um, you know, the, the type of gross margin improvement that, that Tesla was able to post this quarter on the back of pretty substantial um, declines in ASP quarter over quarter. I think I think a lot of folks were sort of anticipating higher ASPs just just based on model mix and and, you know, model S being back. Um, kind of in the mix in a more substantial way. Uh, but you actually saw, you know, sequential ASP decline and a, and a pretty drastic uh, gross margin increase on that uh, decreasing, uh, uh, you know, per unit revenue base. So I think it, what, what Mayor is saying is absolutely true that, you know, they're, they're able to you know, absorb so many more of the, the kind of fixed costs um, to not only, um, you know, absorb the, you know, the, the lower uh, pricing, uh, but also to um, overcome a lot of the supply chain issues that are so well known and kind of trumpeted and all the traditional OEMs are using that as an excuse for like blown earnings and, you know, shut product, production shutdowns. Um, I mean, Tesla is posting pretty remarkable results in the face of declining ASPs, a worldwide supply chain issue and, uh, you know, ramping on uh, two new uh, plants, which granted those those probably didn't impact Q3 very much, but... Uh, it was just super impressive execution in, in the face of all those trends. Yeah, I would have to agree. Their ability to continue to manage this whole supply chain uh, ordeal <laughs> around the whole world is continues to impress me. I mean, I'm dealing it with it with my own company. And the fact that Tesla can do it on such a large scale is, is quite a feat, I would say. Um, is there one uh, one specific thing maybe on the earnings report that surprised you guys the most? Or that stuck out to you? Um, a couple of things. There's, I just have a few notes here. Um, like, you know, I think, uh, you know, this stuck out that, you know, they're expecting, uh, you know, Fremont to continue to ramp production. And I think, uh, you know, Zach actually dropped a number on the call. I think it was, he said it was, you know, they're targeting 50% uh, growth out of Fremont, right? Um, Which is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, so that's again, you know, that's going to be. I'm, I'm sure that's going to require adding a few general assembly lines. I'm not sure though, but you know, so that you know, I think that's going to be even an, a new source of operating leverage. You know, because that's just an existing factory. I'm sure they have to invest a little bit more um, to build a new line to be able to get to that 50% growth in unit volume. But you know, again, that's yet another source of of increased, um, you know profitability without necessarily have to spending, you know, necessarily have to spend, you know, the billions that's required for a brand new factory. Right. So that's a big thing that I saw um, mentioned on the, mm -hmm. both the report and the, uh, on, on the call. Um, also, what's also note noteworthy is improving gross margins for services. And we've seen it. There's a nice little chart that they included in there. And uh, it's kind of like a, an interesting trend that you see um, because services have always been, a source of losses for Tesla, and that's probably by design. Um, but uh, it looks like it's going to flip to to pro, you know positive you know gross margins, and that's interesting. Yeah, next quarter, yeah, yeah. And so I'm guessing that includes uh, you know correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's including um, the insurance uh, Tesla insurance as well, which was also interesting. You know, Zach carved out almost five or 10 minutes talking about just the insurance on the call. But um, yeah, it looks like that's yet another source of, um, you know, gross profitability coming in. 
you know, if they can flip that positive, that's yet another sort of, you know, red tape or red ink that is now becoming, you know, going into the black. So that's another thing that's interesting that I saw. Um, and uh, the deferred revenue actually increased. A lot of us actually thought that deferred revenue would actually come down because of uh, the wider release FSD beta. But, uh, you know, as Zach mentioned on the call, they actually decided not to do that. And so we actually saw an increase in deferred revenue by about $200 million in a quarter over quarter. So um, not that that's a big thing. I don't think that deferred revenue recognition is going to be something that the street is going to celebrate all that much because it's, you know, one time in nature. Um, what's more important is the ongoing take rate. Um and, you know, the overall, you know, FSD sales as a mix of, you know, total revenue or gross profit. Um, but still, it's interesting that they decided not to, they decided not to recognize even some of that or, you know, most of that, I should say. Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. maybe on that, that last point, uh, Mayor, that was one of my biggest takeaways. Um, you know, I have been... Uh, anticipating that whenever Tesla did introduce the uh, FSD subscription offering, that that would result in a, in a pretty steep decline in the FSD take rate. Um, so I was pretty surprised that they actually answered that question around FSD take rate, saying that, that essentially that held steady uh, quarter over quarter in the face of the launch of, of FSD subscriptions. So to me, that was a, a really good takeaway. Um, you know, that was that's probably another source of ongoing margins above what, what I was projecting. Um, you know, at least for Q3. And, and so that gives me some, some confidence that, um, you know, in Q4 and beyond, there's probably going to be a little bit more stickiness. Um, and I, I kind of have a sense that we may have found the bottom of the FSD global take rate. Um, best we know right now, it's probably in the, in the high teens. Um, I was estimating around 18% in Q2. Uh, I was thinking that would drop down all the way down to 13% in Q3. Uh, but, you know, based on, on the comments from, from Zach today, I would suggest that maybe, you know, 18% is, is the way to go. And, and then as, as FSD continues to improve and the, the beta rollout goes into like final wide release um, and, and all that revenue is recognized, uh, maybe the, the take rate starts to tick up from there. Uh, and that has pretty drastic implications for uh, margins going forward as well, uh, which was another one of the, the kind of comments on the, the call of, you know, as you're, as you're switching from hardware to software, what does that do to your margins? And they, they kind of avoid that one, but it's, um, it has the potential to be quite drastic. Uh, so I'm, I'm super excited to see how that pans out. Um, and maybe one other thing that, that stuck out for me on the energy side um, is just that, that chart they showed on slide nine, um, where you had total energy storage deployments over the last several quarters and, you know, kind of just barely eked up to um, five gigawatt hours or so in the past four quarters. And, and now they're, they're building dedicated megapack only capacity of 40 gigawatt hours. So um, that, that's always been kind of the um, forgotten like stepchild of the, of the business is, you know, the energy, they kind of got whatever yep. leftover cells weren't absolutely critical to, to get into automotive manufacturing. Uh, so the fact that there's going to be dedicated, you know, megapack only capacity being built at such a drastic scale, I mean, bigger than the original Giga, uh, Giga Nevada plant, uh, just on megapacks. Um, so, so that's really encouraging for me. And, and I, I can't wait to see what that does uh, to growth in the energy business over the next couple of years. Definitely. 
Um, why don't we, uh, if you guys don't have any other, oh, go ahead, Alex, I see you unmuting yourself. Yeah, I was just going to mention uh, from, yeah, this was more for the, for the call though. Uh, I, I really enjoyed like the comments when they talked about like service, uh, mobile service, service centers, and the parallel that they make also with the superchargers. The fact that as they're, uh, the, the kilowatts like per superchargers increasing and the new battery packs makes you spend less time at a supercharger. So like the cost to, um, to deploy more supercharging station is the, that pressure is being reduced, uh, by the, the advancement in technology that they can output in, 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 in supercharging, but also on the service side. That yes, there's a certain lag, but they're really focused on like the best service is no service where you don't actually need to have the service. Cause we were having these discussions earlier where uh, some people have been complaining about the service, but I think uh, if they can, if they can actually pull this off, that means that their margins uh, for every additional like car of, of production the cost associated in service and supercharging locations decreases over time. Yeah, absolutely. They've got so many kind of unique levers that they can pull to improve the overall customer experience. Um, I mean, I, I thought the, the answer, I think it was Drew that was talking about that, Dave, of, you know, kind of increasing the, the charge rate, um, you know, with, with the newer vehicles as opposed to the kind of the, the older Model S vehicles and Model X vehicles, the fact that they can charge faster and the new 250 kilowatt stations, it really does make a, a huge difference. Um, smart routing even to kind of avoid, um, you know, crowded superchargers. I mean, the, the other OEMs in this space, like don't even have a network and Tesla's optimizing, okay, how do we, you know, um, minimize the actual stop time uh, to improve the overall customer experience. So um, everybody else in this whole industry is playing so much catch up and, and they're just so far behind where they're hoping to get to like 150 and like 200 kilowatt charge rate uh, with reasonable penetration, you know, globally. Uh, Tesla is already, you know, like well beyond there. They're talking about 300 kilowatts. I think Elon mentioned on, on a recent call. Um, and then they're, they're doing things like optimizing the route planning. Uh, and, you know, customizing the uh, usage rate. So um, it, it's just such an intelligent company. And it's so cool to see the, the levers they can use to improve that overall customer experience. Uh, and they talked about that a little bit also just with the kind of pricing on, on insurance and what that can do to, yeah, you know, the monthly lease payment. So it's, it's just so um, fun to watch them innovate at this breakneck pace that they've, they've been innovating at for, for so long now. Yeah, and I, I think it's hard to like under it's hard to overstate what they've achieved here because look, anybody can anybody can make margins and profitability building cars that are priced at a hundred thousand dollars plus, especially today. I mean that might have been difficult even ten years ago, but today battery supply is you know multiples bigger than it used to be back in twenty ten. So anyone could make, you know, like, you know, $100,000, $120,000, $150,000 EV today and, and make decent margins on that. Um, but for Tesla to continue to ramp down the ASP and at the same time increase gross margins is truly something extraordinary. Like, we don't see this happen anywhere else, let alone the fact that they're increasing gross margins. Nobody has... EVs at an ASP as low as Tesla. No one. No one can do that. 
And if they ever do do that, no one would be able to do the gross margins that, that Tesla's doing at that ASP. So no one has like, you know, like if you sit on like any of the earnings calls of GM or, or Ford, yeah, they're talking about their EV programs, but no one is talking about their expected gross margins. Uh, that's just not a discussion point at, at all, right? And the reason is because it's going to be negative for most of the part, or it's going to be very low compared to what they're doing already. Because, you know, if it was positive, if it was something great, then they would have no problems talking about it on the earnings call. So this is something that's just extraordinary what Tesla's been able to achieve here through scale, but through, you know, manufacturing innovation, right? This whole idea that we're going from, you know, the original Model S to the Model 3, which required substantially less wiring and harnesses and parts to now the Model Y, which, you know, the, the, the rear underbody is basically just two parts. And now that's going to become one part. You know, it's just a revolution in engineering innovation. And that's is that basically what's contributing to the ability for Tesla to do this. Right? It's just relentless it, it's, innovation. It's, it's an outstanding point, Mayor. And it, it honestly surprised me. Um, I mean, back in 2019, I made some, some forward-looking projections. And, and I forget the exact numbers, but, but I'm, I was actually projecting pretty close to the earnings numbers that Tesla's actually posting so far in 2021. Um, but the way I thought they were, would get there was by higher FSD take rate and higher pricing. And in fact, we've seen the opposite happen. So they've been able to get these outstanding gross margins just on the back of manufacturing excellence. Um, and, and so that's super exciting for me, one, because it's, it's kind of an advantage that I didn't really believe a couple of years ago anyway, that they'd be able to achieve. Uh, but, but two, it still leaves the door open for like kind of absurd margins going forward when FSD take rate and, and pricing uh, increase. So it's, it's so impressive what they've done so far. And, and in my mind, it's, it's really just the beginning, you know, you've got Gig Berlin and, and Austin are going to be, you know, obviously the, the, the latest, greatest state of the art plants, which presumably can, can do even better on, on the manufacturing side, uh, even while uh, reducing ASPs. Um, and then we all know uh, FSD is just going to continue to get better. And so if, if take rate, I mean, you can just run the math and imagine if take rate goes to, you know, 30, 40 percent and it's fifteen thousand dollars, like the, the, the margin dynamics on that are just, you know, kind of crazy. Um, so it's it's a super exciting time to uh, kind of be witnessing how how well Tesla has executed. Uh, but there's so much more excitement still ahead. Yeah, and I think when you look at where that ASP reduction is really coming from, it's interesting that it's basically driven by a shift in the product mix away from SNX with SNX deliveries declining year over year due to the ramp of the new products and the supply chain shortages associated with it. So you basically saw a lower number of SNX and a much heavier focus on 3NY than we saw last year and also huge growth in 3NY which drove down ASPs. But I think the future for these products as they ramp looks really good. Like these new SNX, they're amazing. Um, they're going to be able to upsell a lot of people who are in the 3 and Y to the SNX, I think. And fundamentally, they're going to be able to leverage a lot of the structural cost improvements that they've brought to 3 and Y in the SNX. I mean, you know, things like the heat pump and... Uh, you know, battery technology, in-vehicle technology, uh, it's all the same, right? So 
it's definitely really, really exciting. And, you know, Matt was talking about supercharging also highlights really the power of vertical integration, right? So with the other guys, you kind of have to put out a vehicle that supports a higher charging rate, and then the charging stations need to support it. It's never kind of matched. Tesla can know what kind of vehicles they're putting out in the future that are going to have like a 350 kilowatt charging rate and start building the superchargers ahead of time. So people can actually use these features. It's not just like the Taycan where it has a 350 kilowatt charging rate, but you can't really find many chargers. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, on, on top of that, the, just kind of the ability to to route to those those chargers. I mean, I remember I think it was um, Marquez did the, a video recently trying the Maki versus a, a nice vehicle versus the, the Tesla. Like the the Maki routed to a broken Electrify America charger, so it's like, okay, shoot, what do we do now? And um, you know, with Tesla, you're not going to have that issue. They know. You know, if a if a charger's out of out of order, um, and they there's just this, the whole service situation is uh, much more reliable on, on Tesla. So it's I really hope the others kind of pick up their game because it's not it seems like it's not really a fair fight right now. Um, you know, there, there's room for a second place in this market, but it doesn't seem clear who that would be right now. Yeah, it's such a good point. Like we saw this driving across the country that supercharging really is a software service as much as it is hardware. It's the software that runs on the car that gets you to the right place, that tells you how many people are there, that works with your car perfectly, that doesn't need you to enter any credit card details. You just plug it in, all of these things. And then they also announced today that they're going to start doing dynamic routing. So now they're going to give different people different superchargers in their navigation based off distributing people evenly between the network capacity they have. This is pretty amazing capability that just results in a better user experience on really uh, basic mission critical things like long term. Yep, agree 100%. So why don't we move on to the actual earnings call? Do you, what were you guys' thoughts on Elon not appearing and sort of the them going through all the questions from, say, <laughs> Mayor, do you want to go first at that one? Yeah, so I have a I have a slightly different view. Like initially, I actually liked it the fact that like from the Q two call when we found out that Elon wouldn't be on these calls, I actually enjoy. I actually kind of cheered that, um, just because I like you know I like to hear more voices other than Elon because you know he tends to dominate the, the discussion. Um, which is why I thought the AI day was interesting because if you, you know, if you watched AI day, like I was surprised to see Elon, like not interrupt, like at all when other people are speaking, you know? So that was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, initially I, I, I kind of applauded that idea. Um, I mean, we, we know Jeff Bezos doesn't attend every earnings call either. So it's not unprecedented for that to happen. And I, I definitely want to hear more from Zach as well um so that was good to see um but as the as the call actually happened i kind of missed mm -hmm. elon so <laughs> so um, yeah i kind of missed his uh, quirky uh you know responses uh, or his color commentary you know yeah i tweeted out i sort of i did miss his spawn in 80 um 
but of course wall street likes more predictability so they, they probably prefer this format than but i think all of us fans probably prefer the old one <laughs> yeah it was definitely more of a buttoned up presentation i mean you could tell they were reading kind of prepared remarks like for the for those say.com questions um so i mean i thought the content was good it was certainly a little bit more dry um I found myself slightly bored at one point just listening to them, but even though the, the information was good, um, it just didn't, it had the, a different feeling for sure. But I, I do think it was a good thing for the company. I mean, um, he's, he's clearly kind of the, the head honcho and, and everybody knows that, but it's, it's only a good thing for the, for the company to have a deeper bench and to have more players who can, um, you know, handle these questions and who have Elon's trust to, to do so without his, his oversight. So I, I really do think it's a good thing in the end. Um, just selfishly, I, I kind of wish for more of his, his quirkiness to, to shine through. Yeah, I did notice Elon was on, I think, on Twitter liking some of our posts during the call, which I thought was funny. Oh, was he? I, didn't, I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are your guys' thoughts on, like, I think they said... Or, Tesla said that they don't. They plan on starting production at Giga Texas and Berlin this year, but they don't plan on delivering any until early 2022. Do you think they're sandbagging at all a little bit, or do you think that's sort of what will happen? I I kind of took them at, the, at their word for that. Um, it's possible that they're sandbagging a little bit, um, but it's. I mean, it, it, it's so close. I mean, I think even if they do end up making some deliveries. I, I'd be surprised if it's more than, you know, 10,000 or so. So it wouldn't make too much of a difference uh, in the quarterly numbers. So I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, inclined, I think, just to just to believe them on that. Now, Mayor, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And I it, like I, I noticed a few times, actually, a couple, I think Zach mentioned it maybe three or four times, actually, over and over again, that you know, the timing of ramps are just super difficult to, to be able to predict. So it sounded like he was a little slightly pessimistic on operating margins for the next quarter or two. Um, but, you know, was super bullish on it over a four to five quarter period. So, you know, we may not get these same margins that we saw, you know, this quarter and last quarter again in maybe, you know, Q4 or Q1. So that's just something to, to keep and keep an eye on, you know, as well. Yeah, I think uh, Zach mentioned pretty clearly that there are a lot of unknowns, unknowns, and also that the star, the stars could align and actually it could go better. So my guess is I'm taking it at his word, but still, sand, I think they're still sandbagging a little bit. Uh, you know, doing like a a Scotty type thing uh, on Star Trek, basically like I can't give you any more; it's impossible. But then you know. You do a few thousand deliveries before the end of the quarter, uh, the end of the year, and suddenly it's like you're a hero. Uh, I think that's what they're aiming for. Yeah, and keep in mind, um, you know, their installed capacity, right? According to the shareholder letters, over a million cars, right? So they can ex- they can still squeeze out more production out of the existing factories too, if they can secure enough you know, battery supply, right? So that's that's still possible for them to squeeze out even more, you know, operating leverage, I think, out of the existing two factories. Um, so that could be something that, you know, ends up, um, you know, masking any inefficiencies from from the ramp, right, of, of Austin and, and Berlin. And I think he mentioned that as well, specifically, uh, you know, on the call. 
that there, there's one key difference between this ramp and past ramps, which is that they have two very profitable factories that are just humming along right now. Um, so that's a key difference, right? That, you know, it's just, it's just a completely different, you know, phase that Tesla's in today versus where they were in 2018, you know, when Model 3 was first ramping. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they gave any guidance on on when they were going to increase the, the capacity in, in Fremont. Um, that seemed like kind of a mystery to me. Uh, but if they're if there's potential to get a few hundred thousand more vehicles out of Fremont, um, I, I just don't know when that would happen. Um, but that, that could help mask it, like you're saying there. Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes. I, I see that, yeah, he mentioned specifically that they did 430,000 units over the past four quarters and that they're targeting an increase of 50%. But yeah, he didn't mention a timeline for that. Yeah, so SNX would obviously kind of be explainable in, in being low from the previous four quarters. That should certainly ramp up quite a bit more, but um, 50%, that, that's, that's more than 50% uh, explainable only by SNX. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see um, when that will happen. I'm just looking also towards uh, my notes and I've got like written 4680 bullish that, uh, and now I'm going by memory, but they were saying they were like very happy with uh, the production and they were actually like just waiting on testing and homologations and all that stuff. So that I was very happy to hear. I don't know if you guys picked that. Uh, picked yeah. yeah. I think if you look at the uh, 10 gigawatt yeah. hours that Cato Road is expected to get to in its trial stage, and you divide that by around, you know, 75 kilowatt hours per car on average, maybe it'll be 100, maybe it'll be 50 for some cars, I don't know. Um, you get around 133,000 cars. So if they expanded that a little bit and did some local production lines of the new process they're doing in Berlin and Austin and Fremont, on the Y side, uh, that could potentially help make up some of that gap in addition to ramping SNX and Roadster or whatever else. They yeah, yeah, I'm curious how they would go about offering two separate batteries for the Model Y and how customers would feel or if they would even inform customers which one they'd be getting. Mm, yeah. I mean, I assume it'll have to be more expensive at first in the early phase. So they may want to make it like a higher trim at first and then, you know, bring it down the line. And I'm sure people would probably want to pay more for it. And they don't want to invalidate all their existing uh, lines and kind of obsolete them. So having them at a lower price would make them still kind of functional for the company. Um, so, yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, I don't think they're going to mention what batteries. It's like, if you remember Plaid, people were speculating, yeah, it has to be 4680, and some people, no, it's not. It's 2170, 18650s, and it turned out to be 18650s. So they're not advertising. I think even people at the Plaid event were asking uh, Baglino, and he was just smiling and walking off, like not answering, because it's not something they want to like advertise it's not supposed to be important to the consumer <laughs> what kind of battery is is you know in the yeah they're not going to say 4680 they're going to say you know 
420 miles of range. So that's exactly, yeah, exactly. They'll, they'll advertise the specs. And also thinking about the Fremont expansion, they did give us some numbers today that they have 40, 420,000 cars produced in Fremont. So a 50% expansion would be about 210,000. Yeah, which is, you know, higher than their stated installed capacity there. Um, so it's, it's that to me, at least begs the question of timing, you know, is that do they need like additional lines or can they just kind of improve production speed? And, and you know, it seemed like that would be a 2022 type of thing, but they didn't leave a whole lot of or give a whole lot of clarity around kind of when we could expect that, that increase in production. Well, Elon did mention to us at one point that after they launched the new paint shop in Berlin and Austin, this was a question with regards to the paint shop that they would bring the new paint shop to Fremont and uh, Shanghai as well. Once, you know, they can do that without kind of the downtime affecting it too much. So once Berlin and Austin are ramped, they would then, you know, install, upgrade the paint shop, upgrade other components in uh, Fremont, Shanghai. And it looks like they're already starting to do that in Shanghai. So, you know, that's kind of what I would expect is that some of these new processes from Berlin and Austin, once they're ramped there and perfected, they'll be brought over to the other factories as well. And that's probably where you'll see at least some of that volume grow. Yep, that makes sense. Are there any other topics you guys want to discuss? Otherwise, I think we'll maybe jump into questions from the audience. I got, I got one more thing here because I noticed that Zach mentioned that – I wrote it down. He said that it's not widely known, but if you trade in a Tesla to Tesla, there is a difference in price for FSD. So it seems like they, they started changing their ruling on – if you want to sell your Tesla, that they actually pay you back the FSD price? Is this what you guys heard as well? Yeah, I actually always assumed that was the case. I didn't think anything otherwise. Like, I don't know if other people did. Yeah, I think it's a lot of myths around this, you know, and a lot of kind of emotion rather than like fact-based discussion. You know, like once you buy FSD, FSD is on the car, you can sell it. Like, I sold my car to Warren and I bought it for 40,000 after the tax credit. Warren bought it for 44. And part of the reason he wanted to buy it was because of FSD. So people, at least some people will pay more for FSD. I think sometimes, you know, when people get a trade in and they love this car so much and they feel like the trade in isn't worth it, they just kind of get angry and they're like, okay, well, you know, FSD isn't reflected or, or whatever. But, um, like it may not be reflected in full. Like they may think, okay, I should get $10,000 for it or whatever, but uh, they only get some fraction of that. And it's really dependent on what the market values it at. And as the market value in consumer demand for FSD and the features, especially after city streets uh, is released, goes up, you're going to see that reflected in resale prices and, you know, places like Kelly blue book and that kind of thing. Um, based on actual sale data like it's like what elon said today the release of the software is going to be a huge increase in the value of these assets like one of the yeah yeah i'm looking at it i'm looking at it more like from a view from a european 
uh, Tesla driver because we are so far behind. But obviously, we we we, we still pay uh, we still pay for the uh, for the FST software. So this this is actually quite an interesting po uh, point for us, especially if you like want to now buy maybe a Model Y and sell your Model Three back to Tesla for which you paid for FST, even though. We never really had it here. So th this could be really, really interesting in Europe. Yeah, I, I, I think one, one of the things they were, were mentioning is that there's no actual line item for FSD when you do a trade-in. So it's not valued like separately to your car. Like this is your car and this is your car with FSD. And mm -hmm. here are the two amounts, you know, you know one with, one without. Uh, that could cause a problem. But from a purely corporate like standpoint, like greedy corporate uh, perspective, you know, like Tesla pays for all the hardware and it's in the car already when they sell it to you, whether you're taking FSD or not, the, 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 like actually the software side, you, you, you get the software and you get the updates, but the marginal costs for these things are very, very low. So when they buy back the car from you as a trade-in, and then they sell that car back to somebody like the wrong thing would be not to value it at all and actually try to sell it again for another 10 grand. But there, it doesn't seem like that's what they're actually doing, but they're not actually telling you how much they're valuing this. And as FSD yeah. is supposed to be increasing in value, this is the line item for the FSD should actually also be increasing. I don't know if that if no, I totally do. Cool. So I think we'll uh, move on to questions from the audience. Nathan, how's it going? Hey, good to talk again. Um, yeah, I just wanted to go back to that uh, what Alex was talking about about the FSD uh, being on the trade-in vehicle. Um, you know, once you've taking delivery of a vehicle, uh, it's unique. You know, whatever wear and tear you put on it, whatever options you selected to purchase with it, um, you know, that's factored in. And that's basically what Zach reiterated uh, on the call. So, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, to, to point that out. Um, one thing I, I did want to, you know, go over, you know, maybe pick your brains about is the 4680 cell. And... Um, you know, how many factories will this uh, production capacity be installed in? Um, we know it's at Cato Road, but Berlin, Austin, uh, where next? Yeah, I, I guess it'll sort of depend on what Tesla's future um, factory plans are. I mean, I, I was told by a source that initial 4680 capacity at Giga Texas will be about 500,000 vehicles. And that's just the initial capacity. Um, Long-term, I, I could definitely see up to 2 million, maybe, potentially. Um, but in terms of, like, other factories, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what your guys' thoughts are. Actually, I think they're going to install it everywhere where they, they're going to be using them. So they're going to be in Berlin. They're going to be in Austin. They're probably going to be in Nevada. Uh, and Cato will probably eventually just provide for for fremont so everywhere they, they need batteries to build cars they're just gonna roll out those lines and start making them uh give uh, if they're making like structural packs at that time 
So first places that are going to make structural packs is going to be uh, Berlin and Austin uh, in production. So this is where I expect the first lines to go. Next caller. Ed, how's it going? Oh. <laughs> Noah, are you there? Yeah, I am. Uh, apologies if there's any background cool. noise. I just wanted to quickly like share a few thoughts uh, that I had about the call. Specifically, I thought that, you know, despite uh, maybe lacking some of Elon's usual antics and spontaneity, I thought it was really a great call and I thought Zach was able to like really really effectively convey, convey his messaging on a lot of different things in really great detail and I think that sometimes people forget that you know there's more to Tesla than just Elon and I think it's actually really you know important in some ways to see Zach um, be the one sharing that information and almost kind of lend some confidence to people who I think otherwise get caught up in this idea that it's the Elon show and that nobody else um, does anything. And even one of the analysts who asked the question kind of made some side remarks about it. So I thought it was really important that Zach spoke. Um, and then just the other thing I wanted to note, since everyone's talking about it still with uh, the FSD on trade-in, maybe the situation is different in the US, but I can say that uh, certainly in Canada, they do not value FSD on trade-ins. They've, that's like a publicly known thing. You can you know speak to your service or salesperson about it. So maybe that's different in the US, but it would be nice to see them uh, offer that same trade in value in Canada as well. And hopefully Zach maybe can get that feedback and make that. Well, a lot of times sales and service people are just going based off the same, like online misinformation as others. Like has anyone actually tried putting the trade in value for the same car with and without FSD and comparing the. Yeah. I mean, when I did it in Canada, trading in my car prior to being in an accident, obviously, um, the the value was almost identical to that of other standard range plus model threes that didn't have FSD. So, and and like I said, the sales, uh, the head of the sales center or uh, showroom that I spoke to also kind of conveyed that message that in Canada, because Tesla doesn't do used vehicle sales, I think they do in the US, but in Canada, they just send everything to auction. Um, I don't think that they're valuing that uh, at this point. But yeah, no, I just thought that was important because as much as the U.S. is the bigger market, like I know there's a lot of people who have that complaint in Canada. Well, I have a like uh, like technical question. So, for example, let's say, Omar, you buy a car with FSD and you go to trade it in. That means that Tesla is basically buying it from you to resell it. Now, if the b next buyer does not want FSD, does not want to pay for FSD, does it make sense for Tesla to value your FSD and give you uh, like a trade in value on that. And I'm not talking like from your perspective as a, as a consumer, I'm talking from like Tesla's perspective. How do they manage that? They don't know that that car will be bought by somebody who wants to pay 10 grand for FSD. I mean, well, personally, from Tesla's perspective, I see what you're saying 100%, Alex. Like, I don't necessarily think it does make sense to you know, pony up all that money for FSD um, every time. But I think, you know, there's some balance that can be met between, you know, 
helping people who've never actually gotten FSD. They paid for it. They've never gotten it. And now they're going on to their second Tesla. Clearly, these are people who are like brand loyal. They want to get another Tesla. They're on board with the mission. So, you know, even if Tesla doesn't want to pay them $10,000 for FSD, um, having some sort of situation where they can get FSD on their next car, especially when they have never had the chance to experience FSD beta or anything like that. Um, that would be nice, especially for people who are, you know, brand loyal, they want to get another Tesla and they're on board. Well, I think fundamentally, when you look at what this business is, trade-ins are really offered as a convenience to help people get uh, a new car, you know, okay, well, here, take my old one and give me the new one. And you're usually not going to get the best value from a trade-in. Fundamentally, you have the market price of the car, what the price could be sold for on the open market. And then you have a cost of turning over the car, which is, you know, cleaning it. Maybe there's some percentage of cars that need to be repaired. There's, you know, some washing, some paperwork, all this stuff this cost. So you take the market price, you subtract the cost of turning it over. And that is what you can offer as a trade in. Now, if the market is willing to pay $10,000 for a car more for a car with FSD, then that's what you can offer. But if the market doesn't see that value, because they don't value the features there, then Tesla's not going to lose money giving people trade ins, especially not when you know, demand is so high. So fundamentally, there has to be a market demand. And Tesla does not decide use vehicle prices, even in the US, I think a lot of them just kind of go to Mannheim or whatever, you know, their partners and get auctioned off the same way. But, um, but really, it's just about what the cars can sell for. And, you know, I think there's some good things they can do. Hopefully, Tesla insurance can kind of guarantee it, if you total your car and stuff like that. But fundamentally, this is some expensive shit, okay? All those NVIDIA GPUs, thousands of NVIDIA GPUs, that shit isn't cheap. All these people in Palo Alto labeling your data, that's not cheap. All those machine learning engineers having the smartest guys in the world, not cheap. Chip team, all this stuff, it's fucking expensive. So the old car is going to be on the road generating data they need to label, and so is the new car. So we have to pay for it. Maybe down the road, when things are different and they're generating a lot of cash flow, they can offer some really interesting deals to people. And I think that every single car is going to be able to take advantage of FSD because it has the hardware. So over time, the pricing is going to be totally accessible to everybody. And I think if someone you know can't afford FSD right now or whatever, just like basic autopilot, it's amazing. You know, so I think long term, everyone will be happy. Right now, it's like they have to make the business profitable. But um, I think it'll be really, really easy to upgrade and really, really easy to get access to FSD. Yeah, I think the mindset is you're paying for the software. The hardware comes standard with the car and you're actually paying for the, for the software to, like you said, like those programmers, the dojo and like the chip development and all, all that thing that's happening and the updates, uh, yeah, in the future might be easier, especially with the subscription model. It might uh, it might make things a lot more uh, fluid. But yeah, I can understand Noah being a little bit pissed 
that if they're not valuing it at all and you're a hardcore fan and you're supporting Tesla since day one with FSD and now you, you change it, switching cars and you, you know, you have to pay it all over again. I, 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 yeah, exactly. That's all I'm saying. And I totally understand what you guys are saying too. It's, there's a fine line. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely things will be easier. The, the hardware is there in every car and long-term, I think, uh, it'll be less of an issue than it is right now. Yeah. I mean, I think, I would advise you to just try and sell it to a private party who values it if you can. And, you know, it may be that there's no one who values it in Canada because they don't think the features are coming or whatever. And then, okay, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to resell it for that much, but I think maybe you could at least find one person who will give you some amount of value for it. Me personally, I'm fine. Like I'm not saying, like, I'm not bringing it up because I can't sell my car to someone. There's lots of people who want to buy a car. I'm just saying from Tesla's perspective, Zach said on the call, you know, that they do value it. And in Canada, that isn't the case. And that's all I just wanted to bring attention to. Not saying that I can't sell my car, that people can't sell their car privately. And that's probably the most advisable option if you want to get your value. Yeah, I'm actually also very happy with the situation because like I bought my model three in um, early 2019 and I bought it with um, enhanced autopilot and paid only like 5,000 bucks for it but I got a free upgrade to um, to full self-driving plus I then got the um, the hardware free upgrade in addition to that so for me it's actually a really good deal that I got so I'm really happy about the situation but I know some people are not that happy I mean, this is a huge, huge thing you hear from like the fan base and some of the most committed people because they love FSD, right? And I think like a lot of this anger around FSD is actually pretty bullish because like just look at what consumer demand is for this. Look at how people are playing the safety score game and subjecting themselves, you know, to torture to try this thing out. And even though it's rough, even though it's kind of shitty, even though it can do kind of crazy things, they're like, I don't care. I want to try it now. I want to see, you know, where this software's at and what it can do in my neighborhood. And, you know, I want it on my car and, you know, I don't want to have to pay a lot of money for it. Um, yeah, I want it to be affordable to me because I want it on my car. So, you know, there's definitely a lot, I think that can be improved here, but I think this is something that's evolving a lot right now. They're trying to be kind of restrictive, right? there's a certain risk, there's a certain liability to every user. So they're going to be kind of restrictive in their pricing so that less people use it because you multiply the probability of the crash times the number of users, you get the number of crashes. More users, more crashes, guaranteed. So limiting that, it's good. Once it's good enough to be driverless, the whole cost equation actually flips where the potential for revenue generation offsets the cost. And then you have the potential for Tesla to do things like just taking a cut of the revenue and letting you, you know, use autopilot and FSD on your car with no upfront payment at all. So I think that's kind of what the future looks like. And while it's frustrating right now, the future I think will be bright and they'll really make this customer experience great because yeah, people want to upgrade and they want to buy another car with FSD and have it yeah, do you guys remember, I think it was Zach that mentions that people who are on the safety score have 30% less likelihood of being in a crash just because they, they have the safety score enabled. 
Did I get that right? Do you guys remember this? Well, if you want to be particular about the statistics, the people who chose to turn on safety score got thirty yeah. percent less crashes than the ones who didn't. So, is it because yeah, safer drivers good. are more likely to turn it on? Or is it because looking at the score actually helped them reduce the collisions? I would say to, to a large extent, trying to get a good safety score to get the FSD beta resulted in safer driving that created 30%. Hmm, interesting take. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I also think there's probably um, maybe not so much staying power with that statistic. Now, maybe it'll level out to like 10% or 15% long-term, and that's still a huge accomplishment. Um, you know, but I know from my own experience, I'm definitely like trying to optimize around the safety score right now, and I can't wait to be done with that. <laughs> so um, you know, I think it'll it'll certainly help longer term. And, and maybe once that's tied to insurance premiums, then maybe that will uh, that could even result in more than a 30% reduction in probability of, of collision if, if, you know, there's a actual dollar value tied to that that consumers can really understand. Um, but I do think right now it's it's a it's a very small sample set that they're looking at and, and a, a short window with kind of a carrot for the safest drivers. So um, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in that statistic, but I think the fact that they can even get that statistic right now is, is super impressive. Yeah, and there was something that Zach said that I, I, I have to go back and listen to the call again, but um, I, I wonder if anyone can provide clarity. But it sounded like uh, Zach was drawing a connection between the safety score and the, the model that they've built um, the Tesla insurance product on. Uh, was Did I hear that right? Is there like, is the safety score basically a, a version or, or a derivative of the algorithm that they're using for pricing insurance? Yeah, that's what I understood. And, but that it's evolving, right, that right. it's evolving. This is like the, right. the first iteration, but that's what they're using right now, I think in Texas for their uh, soft start that they did there. That's what I understood that they were using. I mean, this is so exciting. Yeah. Like I could go on, like, I mean, if you didn't really think about this, okay, they're just starting with the safety score. What you're really looking at is a fundamental paradigm shift where the vehicle understands what's happening around it using cameras and computer vision. And this is going to become standard on every car very quickly. And like it already is on every Tesla. And right now they're just looking at these five factors. They're just like, fuck it, just throw this basic stuff in. There's so much more stuff they could look at. How much is this guy running a red light? you know, impulsivity, all kinds of like really, really high level things. How, how respectful is he being of pedestrians? There's so many things you could do to really price the insurance in a really, really smart way where you're essentially increasing profits for the insurer. And when you look at how to model this from a financial perspective, that's where it gets really exciting because right now you're seeing Tesla deliver great performance on really the hardware side of the business, 30% gross margins even before we've really started to see the effects of this transformation. But you look at really what they're doing. They're not underwriting the policies at all. They're providing a data service that's helping the insurance industry uh, price that risk that they're underwriting. And they're providing a user interface. So they don't have to do the UI. They don't have to do the customer service. It just all goes through Tesla's app, reduces their overhead, reduces their call center costs because people are just using their Tesla app. 
they're doing claims using their Tesla app and they're getting uh, data on not just, okay, this guy's married and he's 30. So we think he's in this pool of risk, but no, we can actually tell you the actual risk of this driver. He may be driving like, you know, a 40 year old, but he's actually 20. Or there may be a 40 year old driving like a 20 year old. We can tell you what they really are. And Tesla just gets a monthly fee, right? Even after they've paid off their car. They just keep getting this monthly fee for insurance. If the person is, you know, paying for insurance, someone else is like underwriting the risk. They could potentially even do it themselves in the future, but they just get this monthly fee. And that's all based off their vision system and enabled by FSD and what they're doing. And really, this is why I think you're going to start to see a shift from vehicle deliveries not mattering as much in the future, because it's like, okay, we've got millions of Tesla insurance customers and we're, we're getting a fee for pricing them based on our FSD software, our, our Tesla vision system. And then when you look at autopilot licensing, okay, like if there's other cars besides Tesla that are also running FSD in the Tesla autopilot software, that same vision system can also price insurance on those cars. So imagine now Tesla selling Tesla insurance to like Volkswagens and getting them lower rates because they know you're a safe driver. It's really kind of amazing to yeah, it just it just reminds me of the coarseness of current insurance uh, actuarial uh, math that they're doing. Like when Zach mentioned that the, your marital status is actually like a, a factor of your insurance premiums. Like I'd rather they take uh, you know like actual driving and like fine grained analysis to basically come up with your premiums than like really broad. Uh, trends that they can detect. Uh, I think that's... Well, that's I mean, a- I think it kind of actually does make sense because if you're married, you're probably not going to drive as crazy because you don't want your wife to get mad at you. But Geico knows if you're married. Tesla knows if you have a girlfriend, right? Even if you're not officially married, they can still detect that in the data. And that's where the advantage Yeah, but still... Like th- this is like large trends versus actual individual level drivers, right? Where like you can be married and drive like a, a maniac, but you're uh, like an outlier of that thing, but you're still priced in as the other ones. Whereas now each individual can be priced individually based on their own behaviors in a car. And I think that's that. Yeah, definitely. They did it because it worked. And. Yeah, like I think I think from a statistical point of view, you, you look at like what's the R squared of marital status or zip code with safety, and it's probably quite low. Uh, but like with actual statistics from the the vehicle that Tesla can get, the R squared of you know, you know pr- predicting a probability of collision is probably going to be like drastically higher. So it's it seems like there's a just a huge step change of you know accurately assessing risk. And like, Elon made some snarky tweets, funny tweet about like make actual actuaries like fun again or great again or something like that and it's still true like like who what other group of investors is nerding out on like uh, innovations in the actuarial space <laughs> but like that's just like one of many areas that, that tesla's like innovating in it's, it's just so exciting and usually that that space is like super boring to like 99.9 percent of the population <laughs> Completely. like yeah actuary and energy like two of the most boring industries and i couldn't be more excited about both of them (laughs) and i think for people who love economic incentives 
pricing that risk in a way the consumer can react to is really exciting. Like, okay, normally you buy the insurance, you're like, okay, it doesn't, like, moral hazard, theoretically. Okay, it doesn't matter what happens now, I'm off the hook, I, you know, I don't have to pay more than my deductible. But when the consumer is actually paying a different price based on their behavior, they may actually change their behavior and reduce the risk systemically. And that's what's really exciting. Or even use Yeah, so we had a long people waiting in queue, so maybe we'll 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 shoot them off. Ed, can you unmute? Ed, you're the okay. next caller. Go ahead. <laughs> I think I got it. Yeah, you can hear me. Cool. Thanks mm -hmm. for uh, hosting, guys. Just curious, uh, what everyone on the panel or all the speakers think in terms of when we see a step change in terms of FSD, like you know, a dramatic improvement. And then, you know, there's a pickup in the take rates and the market starts really pricing it in. And also if any listeners, you know, are in the beta program and have any thoughts to be uh, definitely interested to hear about. Omar, I think that'd be a good question for you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, it's good already and it's amazing people who've tried it have been blown away in good and bad ways. They've been like, wow, this is incredible. And like, also, wow, I can't believe it did that. That was crazy. So it's definitely, you know, very good. It's going to continue to get better. There's not going to be, I think one big moment. There'll certainly be kind of step changes. Like I think when Dojo comes online, reducing the iteration time, like they talked about on the call today, that's going to be huge, but mostly you're going to see a smooth progression of, you know, of progress over time and everyone will be able to experience that on their own cars. It won't be a secret. Everyone will be able to feel it. Everyone will be able to see it. And when it's really ready, we'll all know. And I think you've seen a lot of the run up on the stock right now. A lot of that I think is kind of like at least some part of it influenced by really people getting to see and try FSD themselves in more places. I think it, you know, Once it kind of gets out into the public and real people are trying it, uh, they'll start to appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I think you, you start to see that happen in a big way over the next 12 months. When you look at where the software is going to be 12 months from now, um, it's going to be very common for a lot of trips to not have any intervention. And, uh, you know, in a few years, it'll start to be driverless in many places. and before the you know five to ten year timeline you're going to be able to use the fsd pretty much anywhere in any conditions so you know i think it's going to happen gradually over time and you're already starting like that was the biggest most exciting thing to see in the deck the numbers are amazing but we're starting to roll out fsd beta carefully okay that is this is like a big part of master plan part two so just getting it out the door and the regulatory battle associated with that. Once they get their foot out the door, well, of course you can improve it, right? Of course you need to send out a software update to make it better until the point where it's almost perfect, right? So this is the moment. This is the critical point. And it's getting out to people. Um, and I, I think you'll start to see people appreciate that more and more. over. Yeah, I guess I was kind of thinking, you know, I've been following some of the videos online and it seems like definitely pretty amazing, but two steps forward, 
one step back which with each uh, new version kind of wondering if you have any thoughts around timeline in terms of like you know is it a month or two when things start to like you know the public really starts to recognize or is it more like you know maybe six months out a year out that kind of thing well i think in a couple of quarters pretty much everyone who requests it will have it um you know like it's impossible to predict but i think you're already starting to see the public notice in a big way I think you're starting to see regulators notice in a big way. I think it's national news. And, you know, you look at Tesla's valuation, they've got to be giving at least some credit, maybe not full credit, but at least some credit for it. Um, People are recognizing it. And I think the business on its own is probably worth a trillion dollars, just the FSD technology. So, yeah, I, I think it'll, I think it'll be good in the next, like, you know, it's 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 like you said, two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's not always getting better in a linear way. But when you look at where it was 12 months ago and where it is now, it's a day and night difference. And I think when you look at where it is 12 months from now compared to today, it's going to be another day and night difference. So I think buying and holding Tesla shares. But it's not financial advice. I have one just quick thought on that. I mean, I remember back in 2019, Bloomberg did that Model 3 study. Uh, it was like a, a super detailed study. Um, and then Brett Winton from ARC um, she kind of translated that data into what's called the net promoter score uh, and got a 91, which is like just off the charts high. I mean, 70 or higher is considered world class. The iPhone in 2010 was considered a 73. And so Tesla, like the Model 3, just has this amazing ability for the owners to kind of become the marketers of the product. Um, But kind of reflecting on that, it didn't result in like this crazy surge overnight. But I think what you saw instead was like, you know, two years of kind of like um, steady progression. And then now we're at this point, which they talked about on the earnings call today, where the demand is just kind of crazy and they almost don't know what, what what's hit them. Um, and so for me, I, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, the FSD follows a similar sort of timeline where, you know, it's kind of like, okay, different people will have different reactions to it um, right now with its current state. Maybe, you know, three months from now, it will impress almost everybody. Uh, but then maybe it takes a year, two years for that to kind of translate out into the masses and for, you know, it to actually result in take rate moving substantially. Um, so I don't know exactly how it will pan out, but it could follow a pattern kind of similar to, to that. Yeah, and keep in mind that, um, you know, even if you just simple math, like simple arithmetic, the more cars Tesla sells, assuming flat, uh, you know, take rate, the higher their overall auto gross margins are going to go. So even if there's no difference in the gross margin on the hardware side, let's just say you know Tesla sells a million cars, uh, at, you know at a forty-five thousand dollar ASP, and you got a twenty-five percent gross margin on that. You know that's about I, I just ran the numbers real quick. It's you know eleven point two, you know billion dollars of gross profit, and then even if you have a flat, um, you know FSD take rate of say fifteen percent, then the percentage of the gross profit that's coming from FSD is about 10%. And then let's say they increase volumes from 1 million cars to 1.5 million cars. Holding everything else steady, the, the gross margin steady and the, um, 
and the take rate steady, um, the contribution of that increases as they sell more and more cars. So because the gross margins of FSD are so high, um, right now it's starting from a pretty low base, but as you sell more cars, even if you hold the, the take rate steady, um, you know, that margin is going to increase over time because it's becoming a bigger and bigger component of gross profit. So I think the market is starting to pick that up already. You know, that's why, you know, Tesla trades the way it does now relative to other, you know, auto companies, other, you know, tech companies even. Um, but, you know, the other thing, too, is the the return on, on invested capital, too, which is just insane, right? Already, even though take rate is so low, um, Tesla's already at ROIC that matches big tech, right? Only only like NVIDIA, Amazon, Apple, um, you know, TSMC. These are the types of companies that can put up ROIC, um, you know, at these levels. And that's before FSD even becomes a meaningful portion of of revenue you know and that's before all of these other services that we talk about like insurance you know that's before you know austin and berlin even go live um and you know it's already at 25 percent now they just did 3.1 billion in operating cash flow this quarter the the trailing uh, four quarters of total investment, like their total capex, is about five billion net of depreciation. So that's an insane ROIC. I mean, that's a ridiculous return on that investment. Three point one billion in just one quarter. That's and nuts. Spent- and and mayor, that's that's while they're that's why they're they're building two plants. So you're you're backing out, you know, like uh, investments in new plants that haven't even contributed to ROIC yet. It's like it's such a conservative way you're doing it. And it's still amazing. Exactly. Yeah. I'll just plug, exactly I'll just right. plug that, that you did an amazing interview with, uh, with Galley on this. And I really recommend people go, go find it on, on Galley's Galileo's Russell's uh, channel uh, interview with uh, mayor. It was amazing. Really explained it well. Yeah. We really got some great speakers here today and, you know, I completely agree with both of them on FSD, there's so much untapped potential. They have not tapped the potential of the fleet at all. I think what you're going to see in the coming, you know, next five-year time horizon at some point is the software, the premium connectivity, the insurance, the FSD, game subscription, whatever, is going to actually make up the majority of the earnings. And... you know, 100% of the fleet or close to 100% of the fleet is going to generate revenue for Tesla from FSD in some capacity because they all have the hardware. So as the software gets better and Tesla plays with different pricing, because the marginal cost of deploying it to an additional car is like nothing. You know, it's like the cost of like a few megabytes of data transfer. So they're going to be able to do pretty much any pricing they come up with to bring people in $5 for a ride, whatever. And, uh, the majority of those cars of the fleet gets bigger and bigger are going to be generating FSD revenue in some form on a recurring basis. Yeah, that's a great point. And and the existing fleet, I mean, if you just assume 20% of the existing fleet, which didn't, you know, um, buy FSD outright at the beginning opts to pay for it, you know, in full at the $10,000 price, 
that's two billion dollars of basically pure margin. <laughs> so it's like, uh, and that that number will grow over time as the fleet gets bigger. And so, yeah, maybe it'll be subscriptions rather than outright purchases. But I completely agree with you. You know, I think in most industries, you know, you sell the hardware, and maybe you have like a small software co- component that goes with that. Um, but Tesla has, you know, the opportunity for increasing take rate going forward, as well as conversion of previous non-takers <laughs> going all the way back to what, 2018 or whatever it is that they came out with hardware three. So it's just like, it's this massive, um, it's like a pool of potential energy that if they ever can solve it, uh, just has huge margin potential. Um, and then you don't even start talking about robo taxis. I mean, there, there is so much upside potential if they can, um, you know, really improve FSD to the point where, where consumers are valuing it more than they are today. Um, I just love the core of the business is so strong and you've got these kind of crazy, um, like almost unbelievable upside potentials. John, you can uh, go ahead and unmute yourself. Next, John, you there? Next caller, John. Please unmute. <laughs> I was thinking on the earnings call today. Yes. Like, Shit, they must... <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> the same joke. <laughs> All right, we'll take the next caller. Herbert. Hey, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to kind of uh, point out something that I think Omar said when we were talking about insurance. Um, he hinted at it. <laughs> but it's actually this idea that insurance and FSD are very likely super intertwined, right? As we talk about the take rate of FSD. Right now, we think, oh, people want to have this um, this great new feature. But just like they did with the safety score, where if you're on, if you're using autopilot, it doesn't impact your safety score. They, at some point, when FSD becomes better, um, safer than a human driving, then they would just say, you know, if you're on FSD, then your insurance costs go down. So, you know, the two prices could actually be the same thing. Maybe at some point, instead of saying pay $10,000 for FSD, you just pay for FSD plus insurance. And it's the same cost. And you can, you know, take 15 minutes and save 15% of your car insurance, right? <laughs> you know, get get FSD and you'll save money on your car insurance. And then, then what that does is that it's no longer just people who want FSD. You almost have to buy it, even if you didn't care about it. And you'd have to use it, even if you didn't want to. Uh, because it saved you a lot of money. So that's what I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think they'll merge eventually as products. Like you'll probably pay one price for the car, the FSD and the insurance over time. And the FSD and the insurance will probably merge first. So, you know, I think Tesla insurance said like, what was it? They said like 30 to 40% or something was the top potential savings. So you can imagine if you're using FSD 100% of the time, they're not going to fault you for anything because you're not getting dinged. So therefore, you know, you're potentially reducing your cost of insurance by a really substantial amount and offsetting the cost of an FSD subscription. So, you know. Um, And a separate thought I had... (laughs) was this idea that, you know, what if, what if um, they, they went beyond just licensing autonomy to uh, legacy auto? So like, you know, Volkswagen and Toyota. What if they also did the kind of the skateboard, right? The front case, casing, the back casing, and the um, structural battery as well, plus the autonomy. 
then Volkswagen can just create the kind of the car on top of it, plug it on. Then over time, Tesla is not just making their own cars fully, but now they're making, you know, some, some partial cars and selling that and <laughs> their margin goes much higher. And that's how they move to more of a subscription model. I mean, I think they need all their skateboards right now. If we were in a different world where <clears throat> the production constraints were different and they were already selling every car they could, I think, you know, maybe that'd be something to look at. But I definitely think the licensing potential on selling sales to other people and also on licensing autopilot to other people is huge. So we're talking about all these benefits from Tesla on their cars. It's already kind of a good business today and a great business tomorrow, potentially, if it works out. But also getting a cut out of every other car. And I think this possibility is like mostly laughed at at the market today. Um, Autopilot kind of has a bad reputation in many ways because it's the only automated vehicle system that people actually use. So, you know, people are like, oh my God, it crashed, you know, driverless Tesla crash in Texas. Oh, okay. It was just a drunk driver. You can't really say that about say, you know, a cruise because nobody's really using them. So people kind of laugh at this and then they also think, oh, well, it doesn't even have LIDAR. But, and oh, everyone else is doing it. And they've really failed to see what Tesla is doing differently. And I think if consumers demand something and they're not buying an Audi because, well, I have to buy something with FSD and really there is nothing as good on the market, then yes, other people will want to license it. And What's amazing is it's trivial to license. You don't even need to put a radar on the car anymore. Just slap a few cameras on it. A lot of these cars already have cameras all around them. And you just put in an FSD computer and it can just run FSD with probably minimal, you know, work to port it over. So I think this is also a really huge business. And, you know, everyone's model for Tesla, right? They go, okay, energy plus this many vehicles times this. Well, the whole model could be wrong if you potentially have a business that becomes a major software platform across the entire industry and not just for tech. Yeah. And, and I, I think there probably will be some more licensing in the future. I mean, if I were a legacy OEM CEO right now, I think I would probably be saying, Hey, look, the technology I'm trying to develop for three years from now is falling short of where Tesla is right now on performance and cost. So Maybe my best bet is to license some skateboards. Uh, we already know they're going to open up access to the superchargers. Um, but, you know, the, the, one of the questions in my mind is, is how fast will, you know, a, a traditional vehicle be able to, to charge on those? So if you have, you know, kind of a, a similar architecture and you've got, you know, a, a skateboard and the FSD system, um, to me, that's, you know, the, the best way that these OEMs can compete. And then, you you know, you brand it as a Jeep. And there's going to be some people who just don't like the Tesla brand. And that's great. So then they, they can get all the same technology, but, you know, packaged as a Jeep or a Cadillac or whatever, uh, where those designers are still, you know, kind of keeping those cues. Maybe they can do better stuff with the interior that appeals to that brand. Um, so I think that's a good strategy. Um, however, based on my own experience in the auto industry, I don't, I think, I think the executives are, are too arrogant to kind of admit that someone else has a better product than, than them. So I don't think it'll happen uh, at any meaningful scale, at least soon. Um, if they start feeling a lot of pain, then maybe, maybe it'll happen. But um, I think a lot of times the right strategy 
uh, is not always the strategy that's pursued when you've got, you know, uh, agents uh, representing <laughs> these big companies that uh, have pride and, and, you know, some, some human flaws. Yeah, I, I just think that if, if the first one or two large OEM joins Tesla, then the others are toast. So it becomes this, this race to decide, make this decision. Um, you know, you know what I mean? It's just, that's, that's sort of, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, the data, the, the data will be unmatchable um, without as many cars out there. The, the, they can double, the, they can take their existing manufacturing facilities and cut it in half because they don't have to do the, you know, let's say the bottom half of the car. They just, but they don't have to re retrofit um, the, how they, how they, you know, do the interior and the top part of the car. So then they can double their manufacturing uh, capabilities with their existing factories and then maybe beat the other manufacturers. So we've been going for about an hour and a half. So maybe we should, uh, if you guys have any closing thoughts, you can uh, say them now if you like. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, all right. I, I was just going to say, you know, I think we've, we've already touched on a lot of the subjects, but it was just a, an incredibly strong execution quarter for Tesla kind of proof to me that they can continue to, um, you know, manufacture these, these margins, which frankly surprised everyone, myself included in Q2. Um, now I think with it's, there's a higher degree of confidence that they can maintain these going forward. Uh, so that's, that's super encouraging. And then we're going to be building on it, uh, with obviously these new plants with 4680, with energy kicking online, with FSD getting better, with, you know, incremental recognition with take rates going up. There are just so many, um, catalysts going on. It's hard to time exactly when they all will, you know, impact the stock price, but it, it certainly, um, increases my my confidence level which was already pretty high to begin with uh, you know that, that tesla is going to be the most valuable company in the world down the road obviously that's not investment advice but that's you know my opinion and, and emmett who I, I obviously work with at at good soil you know i, I think we tend to think of things in, in confidence levels and um you know my, my confidence level certainly increased after kind of seeing this earnings print Definitely. And for those who are curious, looks like Tesla closed down 1.62% after hours to 851.75. Typical. Cool. Well, I want to thank uh, Matt and Mayer for joining us today. It was, uh, it was a great chat. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, guys. Everybody in the room, like, please give him a follow. Give, give him a follow. Encourage him to come back because we really appreciated them being on here. And they provide so so much value for the community. And we're going to be publishing this episode shortly on this app. And we'll be probably making a few highlights uh, for Twitter. And it'll be available on YouTube for Android users. Yeah, and I just want to wrap up. Uh, the, the last thing I wanted to kind of say is just, it just reminds me of, um, you know, what Elon said at Battery Day, you know, almost two years ago, where, uh, you know, eventually everyone's going to have long range EVs. Eventually everyone's going to have autonomy. Um, but where Tesla is going to really differentiate themselves is on manufacturing efficiency. And, you know, that's kind of like be, being sort of the, you know, the, the TSM, the TSMC, right? The, the sole, like, you know, the most efficient manufacturer of, of electric vehicles in the world. And that's what we're seeing now with just incredible, you know, operating leverage, incredible returns on capital. I mean, this is entering a league of its own. 
right? There's only a few handful of companies that can do this. And the trajectory that we're on, you know, I, th I think the numbers really just show that, you know, if they can execute on just, you know, output based on the unit economics that we see today, it's not, it's not that hard to envision Tesla becoming the biggest company in the world, you know, by market cap and, you know. So, you know, that's, I think, where we're going. And, you know, I think everything that Elon was talking about is, is playing out. We see just, in, just insane efficiency. And no one can do it. It's easy to do it, you know, on a few number of units when you're pricing it for luxury, you know, vehicle buyers. But it's insanely hard to do it at scale and at, you know, a ASP that's widely affordable. And so that's what Tesla is doing now. And I think it's just something amazing that we're all witnessing. Yeah, totally. And I mean, just reflecting back on when I met you guys, I mean, not met you guys, but I think when I first started following you and Matt and some of the other people on the stage was really when I got my Tesla around 2018. And just look at, <laughs> look at where we've come from back then it was common and a commonly accepted view to say that electric vehicles would never be profitable, that they were useless, that Tesla would never be profitable and that Tesla would actually go bankrupt. Now here we are looking back at how many quarters of consecutive profitability and 30% gap gross margins. So a complete financial transformation that people said would never happen. They said it was structurally unprofitable. Then they said it was only because of regulatory credits. That's all been proved wrong. You know, Tesla's expanded their product line. We've gone from autopilot in one lane and, you know, dreaming of full self-driving to people actually using it and talking about it and trying to get on their cars. We've turned a corner with every company saying they're going to transition to EVs eventually. and. Tesla's the only one producing them, seriously. Like, they said the, the competition would come, that they would produce more cars than Tesla. It didn't happen. Tesla's the one leading EV production. So it's amazing how far we've come on one hand and how, at the same time, this is just the beginning. Once these things are ramped, once the 4680 stuff is ramped, once the FSD stuff is ramped, once these two new factories are online... It's a complete game changer. So this is really just the beginning. And yet it's been a complete transformation. So yeah, it's weird to say it, but Tesla probably will be the biggest car company in the world by market capitalization or the biggest company in the world by market capitalization. Uh, and it won't be too long before that happens. So think about it right now. We're all witnessing the birth of the new most valuable company on earth. And think about what that means and really why that is. And I don't think most people realize it, but they'll tell this story. There will be documentaries made. They'll study it and to try and figure out what happened and, you know, what's happening right now. Because it's happening way faster than anyone. It's a it's a great point, Omar, and like I, I absolutely remember, you know, Mayer preaching operating leverage like back in 2018, 2019, when the charts didn't look so good. So it's super easy to like 
make these claims now uh, with the benefit of hindsight, but, you know, huge hats, hats off to his mayor because he's been, you know, drilling on ROIC and uh, operating leverage for years now, and he's been proven right time and time again. And it's just, it's so satisfying to think back on those times when it was, you know, lonely and Tesla Q was pestering everyone and, um, you know, just uh, with the benefit of hindsight. So, yep, he was right. And, you know, we've been, you know, accurate in, in, in believing in, in Tesla and its mission and, and its, you know, stock price. <laughs> so it's been a great journey and it's still going. This is really kind of a generational opportunity. Yeah, when you're invested in it, it's like so satisfying. Yep, absolutely. All right, Sawyer, you want to wrap this up? Yeah, thanks everyone for uh, for joining in. I think this was a great great discussion. Uh, we hope you guys come on again. Um, again, if, if follow, make sure to follow Matt and Mayor both on Twitter and on Colin and follow XPod as well. After this, probably later tonight or tomorrow, I'll upload this episode to our official XPod YouTube channel. That way all the Android users <laughs> can listen into. All right. <laughs> Android users. Thank you. <laughs> no, yeah, that was a great discussion. We got to do more like that in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Good night. Yep. Take care. Yeah. Thank, thank thanks, you. guys. Thanks.